As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Hello and welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast. I'm doing an impression of Joe Devine and today I'm joined by the effervescent Seb Stafford-Blower. Hello, Seb. Hello, JJ Bull. How are you doing today? Doing very well. Thank you for asking. Did you enjoy the football this weekend? I love the football this weekend. I had a football-a-thon this weekend. It was terrific. I had uh, lots and lots of junk food, watched lots of football, stayed in a sitting position for long periods of time. Fantastic weekend. And uh, sitting next to me is the ever-reliable, always pleased to be here, Alex Stewart. Hello, Alex. Hello. Are you having a nice time as well? Yes. That's good. Alex really likes the office as in being in the office. And speaking of things you can do in the office, do you know what's a great thing you can do in the office? Uh. <laughs> Read The Athletic. And currently, there's a 33% off a full subscription to The Athletic for an entire year. That's just £3.33 a month. If you head over to theathletic.com forward slash TIFO, it's full of all the best office readings, like Sam Lee's piece on Manchester City and how Jack Grealish fits into it. It was very good. I enjoyed that. Is there anything you've enjoyed recently, Seb? I enjoyed Charlie Eccleshare's piece on how Tottenham beat Manchester City yesterday or on Sunday because we're releasing this on Tuesday morning. I thoroughly enjoyed that. It was a great way to start my week. Well done, Charlie. Well done, Tottenham. Yay. Yes. Charlie Eccleshare, who's also very good at the game where you throw a block of wood at another block of wood and somehow that's a game that they play in England. So in this podcast, we're going to talk a lot about football. And we're going to do that probably now because the Premier League is back and that's where all the real football is, also Germany. And so I'm going to now leave you in the cool hands and warm embrace of Seb Stafford Blue and Alex Stewart. Brentford 2-0 Arsenal. That was the first game of the Premier League season on Friday night. And the mighty bees, uh, they did Arsenal in. Seb, what happened to Arsenal in this game? Arsenal did exactly what everyone thought they would do, JJ. Because if there was a team that you don't want to put in that sort of uh, established Premier League name versus newly promoted team with loads and loads of energy and desire fixture that happens this time every year, it's probably Arsenal. And if you were going to write a likely outcome before that game even started, you would see Arsenal conceding bad goals from avoidable mistakes and probably also and or a goal from a long throw. It was just every facet of the game felt I kind of very typical of all the weaknesses subscribed to Arsenal. So, for instance, um, warning signs were there pretty early. So the first time the first chance Brentford had was from even Tony dropping deep, taking the ball in a kind of not really under any pressure. And just flicking it into space over, you know, the back of the defenders and just sort of, you know, dropping a ball in behind into the areas uh, behind the centre-halves. And it was too much for Arsenal. And at that point you thought, OK, so um, Brian and Buemo didn't take the chance, hit the outside of the post. We thought, that's not a good sign. If that kind of tactic, which is, you know, well worked, but pretty rudimentary, it's not doesn't come with a lot of disguise. If that's working, don't feel good about Arsenal tonight. Uh, and obviously it wasn't long before Sergio Canos gave Brentford the lead. I think what worried me was that if you're an Arsenal fan and your players are 
playing in a, a new stadium, but in front of you know, okay, a, a, a loud home crowd, but also your own uh, your own away fans too. How do you not match a team for energy like under those circumstances? How do you? I know it's a really basic concept, but like all the all the complicated stuff in football goes from that point, like that that sort of that 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 ground area, and Arsenal looks so vulnerable. Like it was, it was. You expect a, prim- a newly promoted team to play with a certain application and to be on a little bit of a high. And history tells us these kind of things drain away after about six weeks of a new season, and you know that kind of stuff. But you, that's that's the very least you have to be prepared for on an opening night. And the thing is, as well, it had most of a summer to prepare for this game. Yeah, it looked like not that. I mean, there were a couple of things. Lacazette and Aubameyang missed out before they couldn't play for. I believe it was illness reasons. Um, but regardless of them, they looked a bit toothless, Alex. Yeah, I think I think Arsenal, you know, the, the, the issues that they've had with getting players into the box, supporting attacks, is consistently an issue. And that, that has been an issue when Aubameyang and Lacazette have played, but also when they haven't. I think the massive problem they have, which also feeds into the point Seb was making defensively, is this complete reliance on Kieran Tierney to provide any kind of attacking momentum. I love Kieran Tierney. Kieran Tierney is great. And Kieran Tierney is, you know, he he was Arsenal's outstanding player. I thought Lukonga did pretty well as well on debut. Yeah. But um, I think if you're asking your left back to provide all of the attacking thrust, then you're also going to leave that channel to the outside of, of Pablo Mari's left wide open, mm-hmm. even with uh, holding, uh, sorry, Chambers tucking back as a sort mm-hmm. of, you know, slightly unorthodox kind of a right back kind of not position, that channel's going to be there. And Brentford were obviously going to exploit that fact. And if Tierney gets turned over, because, you know, more often than not, even with these surging runs forward and the pullbacks across, it doesn't materialize into anything because there's nobody there to convert that chance. All of a sudden, you know, probably your strongest defensive player also is stranded two thirds of the way up the pitch. And uh, yeah, Arsenal were there to be picked off. As well, they should have known exactly how Brentford were going to play in this. Because I mean, how do Brentford play? Exactly. I mean, it's, uh, you know, there was... Perhaps a slight, uh, not confusion, but, you know, Brentford predominantly used a back four last season. They shifted to a back three for maybe the last kind of 10 or so games. Um, It's possible, I suppose, that they would have reverted to a four for the opening fixture. But beyond that, there weren't going to be any surprises. You're going to get a a lot of energy, a lot of pressing, a lot of direct football. Uh, And as Seb says, if you can't, you know, get yourself up for contesting those sorts of things. You know, Ben White was horribly exposed in his first Arsenal Uh, (laughs) competitive start. I heard something really interesting about that, Alex, because I I thought the same. And I was eavesdropping on a Twitter conversation earlier in which people were talking about how if you look at who Ben White played with at Mm -hmm. Brighton, you have the protection generally, whether it be uh, Dunk or Duffy, like you have the protection of a very physical centre-half. Yep. I don't know what Pablo Mari is. I don't. I don't know what his virtues are as a footballer. He's okay. very handsome. Yeah, good-looking chap for sure. Arsenal. For sure. That's what but like, if um, you know, if, if I'm facing a long throw, good long throw by the way, like a, an eight out of ten on the Rory Delap scale. If I'm <laughs> facing one of those, I want more than a a nice expression or handsomeness in response. Right. Like I want, I, think, a, I want a few elbows. I want someone that's, I want a player that's able to go and clean the whole lot out when when that when that kind of ball comes into the box. And yeah, Ben White's not that guy. No, good bone structure isn't enough. I th- this <laughs> is the thing. He had this at Leeds also, um, where it was someone like you know Pontus Janssen or Liam Cooper. Um, you and and what what frustrated me about it was that people immediately some people immediately turned on this as being an example of Ben White being a rubbish player that Arsenal massively overpaid for. It's absolutely not that at no, all. It is uh, a weakness in that defensive structure. Ben White was was frequently the spare man in the Leeds defence, so he was tasked with covering space with mopping up with then beginning progressive passing moves or carrying the ball forwards like you say at brighton he had dunk webster dan burn is a unit right if dan burn is your is your left wing back you're you're you know, protected 
Right. And and if if everybody kind of points to the fact that Ben White is not very good in the air and loses most, well, I think it's about half of his aerial duels, um, that is fine because he more than compensates for that by being better than almost every other centre-half yeah. at a lot of other things. But you sensibly construct a team around that if that's the style of play that you want. You can't just go, oh, well, we know he's really good at bringing the ball out from the back. Yeah, he's not great in the air, but I guess we'll kind of cope with that. That's that's just stupid squad building. I also like defences have always worked like this. In the old days, Ben White would probably be a sweeper. Like I'm mm-hmm. going back quite a few decades now because you'd, you'd give them the license to be quite progressive. Exactly. But if you think of some of the better uh, centre-back pairings in Premier League history, recent Premier League history, so uh, John Terry and Ricardo Carvalho, for instance, mm-hmm. uh, Carvalho has the pace, Terry has the brawn. There is a little bit of overlap because Terry is probably a better technical footballer than he was given credit for. But there's always been those compensations in the same way that like you construct forward pairings. Like when when you you know, the traditional 4-4-2, like you have you know, you have you have marriages at the top of the pitch where the players complement each other. Shearer sharing works because they're different. Sutton Shearer works because they're a little bit different. You know, you have like even if it was a sort of a that kind of little and large, the fabled combination, the way you have mobility and kind of size. Kevin Phillips, mm. uh, Nar Quinn, that works because they contrast. It's the same at the other end of the pitch. And it sounds very reductive, right? That you need you need a big strapping centre back who's unafraid to put their head in where it hurts, yeah, yeah, blah yeah, blah yeah. blah. Yeah. Uh, and it's you know proper football man stuff. But also, it is actually true, um, and it's it's why when uh, teams play Arsenal, they'll look at Ben White and they'll think, okay, yes, we need to press him. He's going to be a threat bringing the ball out or passing the ball forwards. But we can exploit that if he isn't sufficiently productive. Also in Burnt Leno, you've got a goalkeeper who is not going to be herring out and dominating his box aerially. He likes to come forwards and try and uh, cut the ball off of, uh, to feet. But he's not, you know, he, again, he's not a big, physical, aggressive goalkeeper in that kind of way. Um, and it's it's going to end up costing Arsenal if they don't adapt. But this is the thing with Arteta. And so I'm not saying that we are correct, but um, maybe we are. Maybe we're not. But we might. We are correct. But if we know this, uh, that this is what Arsenal needs: someone hard at the back to sort people out, and that everyone's going to target certain parts of the Arsenal team because they know they're vulnerable and they can squish them like bugs. Why doesn't Arteta know that? Why don't they improve? He he probably does know that, but he. He's caught between, I guess, two stools. I mean, maybe also there was an issue in terms of, of how they recruited. We don't know if there was maybe a player that Arsenal wanted to get in alongside Ben White to afford some of this. Some of it will be stylistic. So the fact that this back four is very, very asymmetrical and you have effectively a centre-back playing as a right-back and a left-wing-back playing as a left-back is some way of compensating for that. Um but if Arteta, you know, we've, we've done videos before on Arteta's style and you've talked about um, the, the, the tactical flexibility to the point of almost kind of things being a bit all over the place. The one thing we absolutely guarantee he knows he wants to do is play out from the back. And if he can't find the right marriage of playing out from the back and solidity and aggression, he's going to go for playing out from the back every time because that's the one thing that you can cling to as being an Arteta tenant. He seems to have spent a lot of time coaching that, um, Seb, but they were just encouraging Brentford to press him really high up the pitch. I don't understand. It doesn't seem to get any better, ever. No, I, I didn't see any redeeming features in the system. Like The only, the only encouraging moment for furious, Arsenal... He furious, didn't he, Arteta? Was really, uh, yeah, but he it, it did. But at the same time, like there's got to be a point in which you take some responsibility for that because the only good moments Arsenal seemed to have were created by individuals. So that was that that chance in the second half where Emil Smith-Rowe like, received the ball brilliantly well and he kind of rouletted through the press and went in into the space behind. It's like really, really lovely bit of football, great bit of skill. But like that's not a... That's not a, that's not the result of a system working. That's just a really good player doing something individually. Um, Nicola Pepe nearly scored a you know a, a good goal. Davide made a brilliant save actually from that. But um, you know it was a, a kind of fairly routine cutback. I didn't see even though Arsenal I think had about sixty five percent of the ball and they had the, the majority of the shots. I didn't see anything that I was encouraged by. I accept that Partey's to come back, Bamiang's to come back. 
don't think Lacazette is that good, but he's there if you want him, I guess. Um, maybe there'll be additions to that defense. Maybe. Uh, so all these things accepted. But um, if the system's not working, like it's not just right. Well, players aren't just decorations on a tree. Like you can't just hang one there and think, well, it's going to make everything look brilliant. Like it can create an improvement. But if there's no system that you kind of that the players either seem to understand or believe in that's a problem let me let, let, the one best example in that whole game to me is the second goal because even if you've just spent the last couple of years on twitter watching the conversation around brentford with one eye you know that they like set pieces you know that they spend a lot of time probably more than most teams trying to kind of maximize the potential of a set piece and so if you're conceding a goal from a long throw which made most of those Arsenal players look like they'd never seen a long throw before, <laughs> let, let alone know what to do with it. Isn't that quite damning about what you are as a football team? That Forget having like the double hard bastard in the middle of your defence who can just, who can deal with everything and can, you know, throw his elbows around. Like it didn't look like those Arsenal players really knew what their responsibilities were in that situation. And that's really troubling. Like it's like, okay, so... We know Ben White isn't the guy to to deal with, I don't know, this ball in this situation, but we have some that we are going to put there. And this guy, you're, when, when they do this, which they invariably will, because teams are going to get throw-ins in your own half. And, you know, this team have a guy that can, like, hurl it 40 yards, so let's be prepared for that. Didn't look like they were. And um, it was bizarre. Like, on reflection, like, beyond all the kind of the, the enthusiasm of the opening night and wasn't it great and lovely scenes in the Brentford crowd, all that stuff, like, in the cold light of day, it's... Pretty, pretty poor stuff, I think. Well, should we summarise it by saying um, Arsenal bad more than Brentford good? Or was it... Bit of both. Yeah, I think, look, as Seb said, newly promoted teams will often not necessarily hit the ground running in terms of results, but they do have that, you know, Norwich against Liverpool a couple of seasons back. The Man City game, yeah. Right, that, there, yeah. There, there, there's a momentum, there's an excitement, right? And and that naturally dovetails with the way that Brentford want to play. Um, I think if you're Thomas Frank, you look at the performance of some of those players, Onyeka, Norgard particularly, um, you know, the, the the forward line's been much written about. I thought Pinnock was excellent, Rea as well. Great. yeah. Raya, Raya is a goalkeeper and uh, Brentford fans were saying to me on Twitter afterwards that um, he was less good with his distribution than he normally is but every other facet of his goalkeeping I thought was outstanding um, so there's there's a lot to be I mean Frank will look at that and go yeah Arsenal was shit but at the same time I think there's sufficient for Brentford to be very enthusiastic about um, so yeah it's good it's oh, good. I watched this at the Old Red Line Theatre pub oh. in Angel, actually. Is that and the best there's... pub to watch football in London? I think it probably might be. Okay. I like it a lot. Good to and know. all the Arsenal fans there were not happy. But I'll tell you who was happy this weekend. Was it Uncle Damien? Oh, he's always happy, yeah. yeah but, uh, him all... but also Manchester United fans, because Manchester United 5-1 Leeds United. United were really good, and it was very fun to watch. Yeah. Um, uh, the first thing we have written down here is, Seb, do you think Ole Gunnar Solskjaer has figured out the Paul Pogba thing? On reflection, what I should have put on the podcast plan was that, uh, unfortunately, a uh, lawnmower issue forced me to miss most of the first hour of this game. <laughs> so I'm probably useless a lawnmower in the analysis. Issue? Yeah. Were you attacked by a lawnmower? No, no, no. Although, in fact, let's say yes, because that's more exciting. Yes, yes and. Yeah. Yes, let's say yes. That's exactly what happened. But either way, I didn't watch very much of this game. So... Well, that's Alex then. Alex, yeah. has he sorted the Paul Pogba thing? Yes and no. Um, in the sense that Paul Pogba is is still ideally what you want from Pogba is playing as a, an aggressive eight. You know, somebody who carries the ball forwards, who dictates the game creatively in that sort of left half space area. I think what Solskjaer has done is he's created a system that on paper looks like a 4-2-3-1, but is not. Um, and is a sort of weird hybridy. Sometimes it's a four four two. Sometimes it's a four three three. And we were sort of talking about this before in relation, uh, before we recorded. I mean, in relation to to Man City, that that actually what you get in terms of how a formation is written out now 
<laughs> very often bear very little reality uh, to what you see on the pitch. And Pogba can come inside, he can drift in field, he can occupy spaces, swap around with Fernandez. Fernandez can push up, drop back. I think what they benefit from is having Greenwood as a relatively clear focal point in that system. Um, and it, it may be in due course that it's Cavani when he comes back. Um, but it allows a lot of the other players to move around. Um, and when you have industrious, scuttly presser types like Fred. That's a nice sentence. Thank you. Uh, who can kind of fill in and around. I mean, and again, during the game, we were talking about this. You know, Fred would be popping up in the, the left midfield spot, the, the left wing back spot, quite a deep um, central midfield area, basically filling in where the others weren't. Um, and that to me indicates this sort of, you know, a progression of, of Solskjaer's coaching ability, being able to get players to do that, to, you know, United looked a lot more instinctively cohesive in this game than I remember seeing them last season. And I think that's very positive for United fans. Yeah. It's unlike Arsenal, they seem to have improved. Yeah. That seems to be getting better. Very fluid. I thought particularly on Fred, um, it wasn't so much they had to find positions, but like each person had their own individual role, but everyone knew that they had to fill in for everyone else. So it was very fluid, loads of rotations, lots of dummy runs off the ball, lots of running. I thought Scott McTominay was outstanding, particularly. He was. Yeah. Alex is laughing. No, no, United's, was, United's third man runs were excellent. And it's, it, I thought it was just perfect to play against a Bielsa team who always marked man-to-man. -man. Yeah, exactly. Um, and dummy runs all these players were making were dragging them so easily out of position and the ball was just going over the top and they were getting in behind. Fernandez is almost like a second striker mm -hmm. like rather than his attacking midfielder thing. Um, do you think Cavani gets into that team ahead of Greenwood now or is it better having players that are a bit nippy like Greenwood that can all swap around on that front? I, personally, I think that it's nice to have the option. I think you have, uh, you know, one potentially very, very high-class player who is who's on the cusp of being high-class already in, in Greenwood. Cavani is uh, an established um, high-level striker, but also has a greater degree of physical presence, movement against teams who really, really drop back, try and defend the edge of the area and, you know, six-yard box almost. Cavani's movement is going to be very, very useful in those circumstances. Um, I think you do get a little more of that rotation with Greenwood. There are a couple of times where he's he dropped off and was then able to carry the ball forwards in that way where because of his two-footedness, you don't know what he's going to do with it. That kind of rotation and movement works really well, like you say, against teams that, that want to man-mark tightly um, because then you can just... And this is Leeds' problem generally. If, if, if you get your rotations and your third-man runs moving well you can disrupt Leeds' defensive structure mm. quite straightforwardly because that's how it works. If you're playing against a team that just wants to sit back in a, in a back five or a flat back four, then, then Cavani will bring something to that instead. So it, it's good for United that they have those options. Uh, one thing I thought was interesting was, um, I think one of the bits they could have improved on was Dan James's output, which is something that Jaden Sancho should do. And I think, did you, were your lawnmower issues finished by the time Jaden Sancho came on the pitch, Seb? Yeah, I... Well, they were. Well, that's good. I want to find out more about that after this short break. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Hello, I'm Mark Chapman. This is what we've got planned for you across the Athletic Podcast Network this season. The Ornstein and Chapman podcast has been rebranded as the Athletic Football Podcast. We'll release four episodes across the week, 
as our journalists bring you the very best insight into the biggest stories in football and the business of sport. Michael Cox will continue to bring you the smartest analysis of all the big games in the Athletic Football Tactics podcast. Adam Hurry will now host two episodes of the Football Clichés podcast every single week with his usual take on the game. There's a brand new Athletic FPL podcast with our fantasy football expert, the FPL General, giving you all the advice you need to stay ahead of your mates and top of the FPL rankings. And the Athletic Podcast Network is also home now to host of club-specific shows, some of which are going to be releasing multiple episodes every week. And we're now your destination, don't forget, for the Totally Football Show with James Richardson and the Totally Football League Show. And that is it. We can't fit any more in. All you've got to do is search for The Athletic in your podcast provider of choice or go to our podcast section on The Athletic app. Not surprisingly, with all of the stuff that I've just mentioned, The Athletic is now the world's biggest football podcast network. And we're back. Seb, Jaden Sancho at United is going to be very nice, isn't it? Sure is, JJ. Good question. Um, <laughs> I still get the feeling that sort of people that uh, people don't quite know how good Jaden Sancho is. I mean, they they know he, he exists as kind of Jaden Sancho, big capital letters, cost a lot of money, must have, must have, must have. But then that's kind of the nature of the transfer market. Like once once fans are told that their club is pursuing a certain player, that player is one that gets elevated to a certain position without really much justification. Sancho, Sancho is, I, he, he's such a broad footballer. Before you say anything else about like, before you say anything about his individual attributes, like the amount of things that he does well is something that United have need, needed for a really long time. And the, the Daniel James comparison is apt because when you think about him, you think of a guy that does some things quite well and he's very quick and can score goals and he obviously poses a counter-attacking threat. In Sancho, you have everything. Like you have the full dimensional attacking footballer, like the definition of the um, the modern wide forward. Like if you were to design a player, he's he's perfect because of all the things he does well. He can play on the counter attack. He scores goals. He uh, can play a final pass. He can play the the kind of final passes you typically associate with a playmaker because he has that kind of level of creativity to his game. I think he's just going to be an absolute joy. I think also if you if you uh, we, we we talked about this a little bit last week, but he didn't have at Dortmund. He never really had the Bruno Fernandez character to work with, and I don't know quite what to expect because you haven't had a you haven't had another player sort of quarterbacking for him in the way that Fernandez might do. I mean, not suggesting that he will, but might do. Pogba might be the same, so that might bring out another layer that we haven't seen. So it's a really exciting little subplot. No doubt he makes Man United better because you just. You can't really fail with that kind of signing. I think over time, what was the fee? Sort of seventy-five million pounds. I think that looks cheap. Like in the way that, like, I expect prices for British players to um, to inflate really, really quickly. Partly because of the sort of the expected uh, effects of Brexit and the need to have homegrown players. I think that's a storyline for the future. I think if we look back in two or three years' time at signing Jaden Sancho for seventy million pounds, I think that's a great deal. There was um, there was a good graphic on Twitter, and I. I apologize unreservedly to whoever made it because i can't remember describe the graphic it was to do it was to do with expected threat um which is a a, one of these metrics in terms of uh, we will have a video out on expected threat very very shortly on the super then i'll point everyone to that i won't bother explaining it but um dan james comes up very highly as a receiver of dangerous passes um who then (laughs) kind of doesn't really do much with it but it does mean that when you stick Jaden Sancho in because Dan James's natural role in that team is to be an outball and to be able to use that pace to carry it and also you know some of the harrying and stuff that he does but I think it's it, it makes it even more likely that Jaden Sancho will prosper in that United team because because the the natural inclination of them to hit those wide areas on the counter-attack is is already there and if you then make sure that it's Jaden Sancho receiving that ball rather than Dan James that that could be uh exhilarating and I say that as a man who 
doesn't get exhilarated by I've never heard anyone say exhilarating and make the word sound <laughs> so boring. <laughs> Quite so banal, yeah. I don't know. Look, hey, this weekend I um I found myself in the very unusual position of actually enjoying myself. What were you with, doing while that happened? No, I watching football. Oh, football, right. Sure. Yeah, no, it's, nothing else gives me any pleasure. Um but yeah, it was like that game was good, you know. It it was it was fun to see it was fun to see United clicking in a way that I hadn't really, I think, you know, fits and starts, some of their big counter-attacking performances in Europe were very impressive because of the way that they were slightly cobbled together. But that felt like a United team on the cusp of of actually becoming something. And, I, you know, it's I'm not overstating it off the back of one result against a team that they tend to do well against anyway. Um, there was just something in, like jo, uh, like JJ said, the, the, the fluency. Hey, <laughs> what? Too well, too well. You well. got confused now. I can't. I mean, I just look over and I see like lots of Mother. big brown hair and a shirt, and I was like, "Oh, that'll be him." Yeah. Um, but yeah, there, there, there was a fluency and a confidence to the way United played that that I haven't, I don't recall seeing that consistently during a game. I loved it, and on a non-real analysis point of view, having the crowd in the stand. Like full, it was just magic. The noise and everything when the goals went in. God, I've missed that. I watch football with the sound off, so <laughs> I, 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 I've I'm missed sure, so many I'm things. sure it was great. <laughs> There's so many little things that I've missed, like um, the uh, I, I even missed the sarcastic cheering. But particularly, and this is when I was watching the Arsenal game, when you see like a a goal has been scored to condemn a visiting team to what looks like a defeat. And the camera pans over all these utterly dejected visiting fans. He just looked absolutely hacked off. I've missed that so much, particularly with Arsenal, obviously. But it's just, it kind of, it's the it's the third dimension of watching this football. Is, you, this you is see. your anti-fandom agenda, no, isn't it? No, it's Alex. Like, I'm just, I'm, okay. I'm just quite a spiteful person. I do like, find this it, funny, though, the idea that you spend, like, you get all excited for the football. It just takes an entire day to get to the game. And then you're yeah, in the game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then... I mean, as an Aberdeen supporter, often the entire game has been done within the first five minutes and you're 2-0 down to Celtic or something. And well, it's like, what a waste of everything. I did find it weird that there were Arsenal fans leaving that game with sort of 10, 15 minutes to go. And I get that Arsenal were rubbish, sure. But this is almost certainly the first time those fans have been able to attend live football in, what, a year and a half or something. Well, they've, got, they've got a busy YouTube schedule. I just like, I mean, I, I I didn't when I used to go and watch Southampton. I didn't leave early, anyway. Just generally, because why would you? But um, it it did seem doubly odd, given the the unavailability of live football for the, the so thing, long. The thing is, is that like it depends on the situation. Like I remember, I remember when Tottenham were at Wembley um, for that year and a bit, a uh, year and a half in the end, um, and the, the season before for the Champions League. Like if you're late, if you if you leave at full time, you end up having to spend. You ended up having to spend up to an hour, hour and a half outside Wembley oh, Park takes Station. Ever again, you know, just a massive crush, and it just was, take a book. No, because no, because first of all, it was night time. Like if it was a Champions League game, wear a also, head torch. I don't know. Like I, um, so I I I generally agree, but there are situations where with the creaking uh, transport. Uh, infrastructure in England it is sometimes better just to get out of there but like yeah 15 minutes is excessive and like depends depends how you're leaving the stadium depends how you're leaving home if you've got young children I get it like if if I see like a mum or a dad taking their kids out a couple of minutes oh yeah no 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 that's that's totally different did um, you did you see the um uh, from last weekend the was it a Cincinnati fan whose kid escaped onto the pitch no oh it was hilarious what what, what, is this uh, MLS. Yeah, yeah. And, and the child just tears off across the pitch and then oh, the really? mum runs on afterwards and basically rugby tackles her own child and carries her off. It was it was fun. Well done, the mum. That sounds like yeah. a good turn of pace. Yeah, good Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, somewhere you didn't need a book or a head torch, like a torch on your hat, I guess, a hat torch, not a head torch. No, you can get one of those ones with like a strap on it. It goes around... 
your head. That sounds really cool. Well, well you don't need them anyway. At uh, Tottenham 1, Manchester City 0. I've done that wrong way round. Oh no, the impression's done. Um, right, what happened in this game? Because the whole thing was about Harry Kane, who didn't even get in the squad because he's not fit yet, basically. He's not had enough time back from pre-season. Or is it, Seb? <laughs> it's a... The Harry Kane's version of events leading up to uh, not being fit enough to play is... I don't know. I'm not sure it bears a lot of scrutiny, particularly the bits where he talks about uh, COVID regulations and uh, what you have to do when you travel. Some of that didn't really add up. But, but, but a day that was all going to be about Harry Kane was not really at all about Harry Kane in the end, um, apart from kind of a little bit of Schadenfreude in the chanting and uh, probably the next few days and whatever happens and, you know, all that kind of stuff. But um, I was watching, I watched the first 10 minutes of this game and after about four, of those 10 minutes I turned to my wife and said this is going to be a very very long season <laughs> it was ugly um, but something magical happened JJ after that 10 minutes all of a sudden Tottenham remembered that you can play the game with heart and even if you're not quite as talented as the team you're facing if you dig in a little bit give your opponent a little bit or not a little bit but a bit of a kicking um, you can make some hay and I think that's what pleased me like was it the most free-flowing exhibition of football? No, but they played in a way that they haven't for a couple of years now. And the minimum expectation for a sporter is there's a bit of desire, a bit of collectiveness, um, a bit of cohesion on the pitch. And I loved every minute of it. It felt I, I actually felt a little bit emotional watching it because I don't know whether it was the crowd and just hearing the noise again and... Also, not having to do that thing that football fans do when they've got overarching concerns about a coach, i.e. like a Jose Mourinho figure, and you know that the events on the pitch are going to somehow be a, a part of a much bigger plot. And it's, you know, what happens, you know, the winning and the losing is really just a, you know, a prop in a much bigger conversation. Don't have that. It was as simple as, great, we're going to knock over Manchester City. And when is that not great? Because they've, you know, they're Manchester City. They occupy a very high position in the game. And it was great. It was great, great, great. I think exactly what you were saying about um, the performance, having desire and uh, the commitment that you need to to get through a game like that was shown by uh, Tanganga. And at the first five minutes where he absolutely went through, who was he went through? Sterling, was it? Sterling, yeah. Yeah. And I like that. Yeah, I, I thought Jaffa Tanganga was brilliant. I know it's been a bit of um, some of the praise for him has been a little bit ironic. I, I, I think it was genuinely excellent because it was a, he is not Serge Aurier in the sense that he is not, I think his future is probably as a centre-half rather than a right-back, but he is not the modern fullback in the kind of the metronomic sense. Um, and yet he did all these things really well. He provided a great attacking outlook. He found quite a bit of attacking space. Tottenham, for the majority of Tottenham's um, uh, attacking adventure went down that side rather than Regulon's side, which is weird because he's the more aggressive fullback. But it was nice to see like an old-fashioned quality to it. It's like, right, well, um, lots of one-on-one tackling. If you get past me, you're not going with the ball. Ball or the man can go past, not both at the same time. It's really pretty, you know, sort of decent fullbacking philosophy. Um, but if you put him... And often he was defending in isolation, one-on-one with either Sterling or Jack Grealish. They got very little out of him. I thought he was great. I thought he, I thought he did really, really well. And also, one of the kind of the, the sort of um, the subtle um, layers to yesterday was obviously a lot of conversations been about Harry Kane and uh, you know a, a Tottenham fan grew up in the system and now wants to leave the club apparently, supposedly, um, and you had. Jaffa Tanganga stepping to the role and, you know, the, the fans singing the hurricane chant to Jaffa Tanganga. It was, it was a kind of um, like a counterbalance to a lot of the things that have been seen over the past few weeks, which if everybody in the, if the whole world is bored of the hurricane transfer saga, imagine what it's like to be a Spurs fan, because uh, this has been going on, not just for a summer, but uh, pretty much, any really high quality Harry Kane performance over the last couple of years has been followed in the post-match discussion by, well, he's got to leave now. He's just got to leave. He's got to leave immediately. In fact, don't even, don't even get, get on the coach home. Just go. Immediately go to... I mean, it will um, happen forever. Like, it will go on forever until he eventually It will go on forever. Goes. And it, it's very, very, very boring. And well, let's move on from it then. 
What yeah. is different from um, <laughs> <laughs> what Nuno Espirito Santo did with that team, how he set them up, to what they were doing under the last guy, who is Ryan Mason, I believe. And before that, Josie Mourinho. What's different? I don't really know what okay, Ryan Seb. Mason's... Well, no, no. I mean, obviously, from Mourinho, it, you know, it's, it's slightly different in terms of the, the positivity. I think... I think it's going to be interesting to see what Nuno does. Obviously, by using a back four shape, albeit with one, and like Seb said, Tanganga, I think is is a future centre back, and that's where he plays mm-hmm. generally when he's in the sort of youth setup at at, um, at Spurs. And it, you can see that there is a way that that shape becomes more of a back three defensively, although it didn't actually kind of have to a lot because he was defending one on one so well. Um, so I think I think we'll see an evolution of this side. At that game felt very much like something where you can't really, and this is not me dodging the question because I don't know the answer, but it's a little bit. Um, I, I don't think that's a game that you can draw an, an awful lot of inference about how a team is going to play going forwards because... It is one game. It is one game. So why did you ask me? It's a stupid question. This no, is what you say, 4-2-3-1 with Deli Alley in the team? Well, what did you say? I, yeah, so. but Deli... I, I mean, so that was an interesting point with Deli Alley. Um, Thank you. Harnessing that ability to uh, to make those driving runs to press. I and mean, Deli Alley always felt like... Um, and Seb will know more about this than me, but but the sort of player who in a 10 position, yes, has very, very good kind of technical trickery skills, but is also a bit more of a kind of aggressive dynamic running off the ball past somebody 10, not a kind of playmaking 10. And actually having him a little bit deeper harnesses that ability without expecting him to be a creative fulcrum as well. And that that struck me as a very, very astute bit of tactics. Yeah. What was he in this game, Seb? Was he like a 10 or I wouldn't say midfield? so. I felt like he was almost a central midfielder at times. Yeah. I, I, I thought he like was his, an eight. Yeah. yeah. I think I think actually that was one of the things that impressed me because in the past, Ali Ali's best performances for Tottenham have usually been with Harry Kane as a reference point. So as a rule of thumb, the closer Delhi was to Kane, the better he tended to be, the more effective he tended to be. Like he has this habit of like being a bit shit for a lot of a game, but then doing something great. And that that's kind of a habit, but then that's what you want from that kind of player. When he moves into central midfield, it feels sometimes in the past as if he's tried to do a little bit too much. Like he's some of the habits that he has around the penalty box. So some of the kind of the more intricate bits of skill he tries them in the wrong place. Um, you know, he becomes a bit too shuttly. So he becomes either too flamboyant or too rudimentary. And he never quite strikes a balance. I thought what was great yesterday is, remember, this was a um, player described as a, quote, lazy guy by one of Tottenham's former managers. Uh, covered more distance than any other player on the pitch. Um, mm. I think he reached the highest average speed, uh, highest top speed of any player on the pitch. Um, covered an awful lot of ground first game of the season has not played a lot of football over the last couple of years certainly hasn't played it in 90 minute batches um, and it was great to see and uh, yeah I, I don't I don't know that that's that's a long term solution because I, I think the role he played yesterday is probably better suited to someone like Giovanni Lothelso, um because I think you want the snappiness of his distribution in those areas and I'd like to see Ali a little bit further forward just because I a lot of this depends on what the resolution to the hurricane situation is. I accept that, but I think his most effective uh, his most effective position is where he is a punctuation uh, mark on on a, on a phase of play. Like he, he is either providing a final pass or or you know complete uh, or finishing a scoring opportunity. And I think he does a very passable sort of seven eight out of ten um, job further back, but it's not him at his best. So I think that's a little bit of a conundrum. It was easier on Sunday because Tottenham didn't have the options in that area to um, make it a difficult selection. Did very well, but I, I think it's it probably changes going forward. Well, also that was that was a team, a Tottenham team that was set up to play very very transitionally. Yeah. Against a Man City side who who I think 
I think we'll concede quite a few goals from transitions this season and maybe especially from their own corners, which I'm <laughs> so hey. just going to put that out as like a slightly random prediction here. Well, but, I was going to um, ask you, Alex, this because I, with the caveat that, you know, it's one game and you know, sure. we're not making, you know, um, a, a proper evaluation of what a team's going to be, but the amount of space Spurs had on the counter-attack like four or five times to that midfield was worrying. And and you say, okay, well, um, going to have De Bruyne back. Uh, there's going to be a centre-forward at some point, BJZ's possibly. You're going to add players in, but you're not adding players into that area who are going to solve that. You'd have thought from a corner situation, for instance, De Bruyne would either probably be taking the corner, so he's not helping that transition. Like, it's a bit, it was a bit chaotic. It reminded me of the, bit in the football manager video we did where Ian suddenly realized that he'd only left one player back on attacking corners. Um, I, yes, I mean, okay, obviously De Bruyne is a, is a very, very good all-round midfielder who does understand his defensive responsibilities and press as well. So I think that'll make them slightly more uh, or slightly less porous in transition when they're defending. But they they had this quite kind of narrow back four thing going on so it created sort of like a little sugar bowl shape but quite kind of tightly um and they were doing the same thing against Leicester in the in the community shield or charity cup or whatever it's called um and I think that means that actually the midfield element is isn't as important to defending those things as that actual intrinsic shape is that that shape is there to facilitate their ability to play out from the back and to to create superiorities between lines of pressure in a way that makes it very difficult to press them. And that makes sense, and I understand why they are doing that. But it also creates a defensive shape that leaves a load of space in the wide areas for players to run into. And if you've got if you're playing against a, you know, Song Hyun Min or Lucas Moura, Stephen Bergwijn, um, who I thought carried really, really well, that's what's going to happen. It's exactly the same as what Arsenal suffered against Brentford. If you defend narrowly or one of your defenders is really high up the pitch because it's the only person who can do anything, then you're going to leave room for those sorts of players. So there are going to be games where that setup really benefits City because they draw teams onto them. Um, the, the teams try and press City, play through them, it exhausts the other team, blah, 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 blah. Against Liverpool, say, for example, that might happen. Um, but against teams that are, A, content to sit off a little bit and also have those kind of explosive carrying players who can who can excel in transition into wide areas, I think City, they're not going to struggle, right? Because they can just, you know, they're, they're good and they've got lots of good players. But it's not going to be as easy as you would think. Um oh. Well, it was interesting because I obviously there's been a succession of games between City and Spurs, which have kind of looked the same. Like mm. lots of City chances, very high XG, and it's like Spurs seven point four XG. That something silly without yeah. scoring a goal, yeah. But I, I felt like yes, uh, Sunday's game was a little bit of an outlier in the sense that I'm sure the XG for City was much higher, no doubt. But at the same time, there was more control in that performance from Tottenham. It wasn't the same as those previous games, and I felt like it didn't. The deficiency it showed in City wasn't just, you know, profligacy. It was, well, there are some systemic issues there that you need to solve. And actually, um, you know, it wasn't just sit 10 behind the ball and break. There was a bit more oh, method no, to that. No, no, it was no. Bolder. no, I'm not saying you, you think that. Yeah, I just yeah. think I, I've no. seen this repeated as a kind of um, reflection on the game. Whereas I thought that actually um, Nuno's approach is a little bolder. Like Mora was um, a little bit more advanced. I felt like... He was happy to leave some of those attacking pieces further up the pitch rather than, um, you know, saying, right, well, you're just going to protect your fullbacks, which probably would have happened in the past. It's kind of that links in with our Tanganga conversation. Like previously, you'd have found probably either Bergwijn or, or Mora sitting in front of him and just, you know, trying to hit probably Son in isolation. Um, whereas it didn't happen. And I, I felt very good about that because it wasn't just one of those curl up, please don't hurt me performances, which I... Maybe sometimes the ends justify the means, but as a supporter, it's pretty difficult to take that as an approach. Um, didn't feel like that at all. It felt like a, a proper battle plan for a game, and that was yeah, it was it was interesting. But it, I, I wonder whether City. I find it strange that all the eggs are in the Harry Kane basket because if you 
if that City team is going to the season without any investment mm. at centre forward, which like Kane's a difficult deal to do. Like I, no, there's nowhere around it. You, you completely yeah. transfer that size is very hard. Just and, buy Divan Zapata, man. Get over. I mean, like, well, yeah, or like, well, but, but you, you joke, but yeah, because you need I'm a. I'm not joking. You need a temporary I'm solution at the very least. Literally not joking. I, I don't mean, joke. You, they could have. Um, it'd have been easy to find a number nine that finds penalty box space like I mean they could have competed for Andre Silva I think that might have been quite a clever transfer before yeah. he went to Leipzig but they look understocked at the moment badly and I don't think just signing Harry Kane or a and other forwards solved that really it's weird bit of squad management to, oh, I really like Jack Grealish but was that the pressing need I don't know he does look quite good I thought Grealish looks great he does but like, he did. He's, he's kind of like He's kind of like wearing um, a really, really, really nice necklace when you haven't got a pair of trousers on. Like it's, <laughs> it's cool. In the in the context but... of Jack Grealish, a lot of people will find that particularly piquant image. I think. <laughs> <laughs> but you see what I mean? Like, you know, yeah. you, you're worrying about like, you know, is Harry Kane the trousers? I don't know if he's the trousers, or but he's, he's, I think he's probably. A I think a new left back is the trousers. I, I personally, I, I one, I think a, a another central midfielder, holding midfielder is. And now two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream Directv satellite free. You see this? A family watching baseball on Directv with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on Directv makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. Directv has the most MLB games. Visit Directv.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Victorinox, the makers of the original Swiss Army Knife, have been a reliable companion for life's everyday challenges, mastering functionality, innovation, iconic design, and uncompromising quality with its products. The Victorinox Swiss Army Knife provides you with all the things you don't think about until you need it. Tweezers, a screwdriver, and even a corkscrew. With the Victorinox Swiss Army Knife, you can be prepared to master everyday life. You can find Victorinox Swiss Army Knives at Dick's Sporting Goods. It feels like every time, Alex, for the last couple of years, every time at this time of year, we found ourselves talking about, well, Fernandinho can't go on forever. Mm. It's been like three years. This, yeah, this, I, yeah, I know, but you you do have Rodri coming back, and I, um, I don't I don't rate Rodri he's not as, as a destructive player particularly. Um, but again, it's the way you want to play the game, and and if if the template is a sort of Sergio Busquets figure, you know, somebody who who stops by reading the game rather than physicality and tackling. Not that Busquets couldn't tackle, but, you know, it, it's more about that understanding space and being in the right place at the right time to afford protection to your centre-backs. And I think Rodri is good for that. And and City will, I think City will continue to look to do this thing of of just dominating the ball to such an extent that actually the defensive aspect of it matters increasingly less. Um, and basically, you know, it's Ruben Diaz. Is, is the one guy whose job it is to try and stop anything. I mean, João Cancelo is popping up in the penalty area again consistently from right back. Like, this is this is the way that Guardiola wants to play, and because he's an ideologue, um, then that's, that's how it's going to continue to go. I think it's important to point out that Although it sounds like we're saying City aren't very good, they are very good. No, no, City are fantastic. City yeah. will be yeah. will finish either first or second this season. Yes, like, exactly. It's, 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 it's between them and Chelsea, right? But it's, you, that is obvious. You, yeah, like it's fine to lose games. I don't think it's it's really. I don't think you can just brush off losing like that to that Tottenham team. It's like it's it's great for Tottenham, of course it is, but that's a really disappointing result, and it, it kind of I, I I don't think it's sort of. I don't think we can kind of look away from like the the super club. Um, whenever a super club stumbles, it can't just be like, oh yeah, but they'll be fine because you know sheer weight of resources and talent. All of that is true, but it's still I don't know. Like it, we still have to generate content. Haven't we, we still so. have to react and say provocative things? Sure. Well, yeah. And speaking of generating content, I mean, we're not going to talk about Chelsea winning. They look good. 
or uh, Watford beating Aston Villa with all Aston Villa's new players. Instead, we're going to talk about Borussia Dortmund 5 to Eintracht Frankfurt. This and particularly right. Haaland's dribbling style, you said. Yeah, it was just, uh, well, I had two takeaways. The first was that um, when Marco Royce opened the scoring, the uh, Sky Germany TV camera in the in the sort of the, the final third of the screen on the right caught a um, caught a plastic beer cup in a, in a sort of perfect up and down arc spraying around. It was great. It was it's just like a sort of a, a wonderful emblem of German football. Um, Erling Haaland, uh, that monster of a boy, he was brilliant. And monster boy. One thing beyond all the obvious stuff that everybody said about him many many times before, it's amazing how quick he is with the ball. Like he's quick without it, but there's very little drop off. So when he's when he's dribbling, he's just as quick, which is really strange. And actually, I was having a conversation with someone on Twitter about this, and he said um, it's because he doesn't take that many touches. He's very efficient. Like he 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 kind of kicks the ball in front of him and runs after it in the way that you might do like when when you're a child. And he was he was brilliant. He was brilliant creatively on Saturday evening against um, Frankfurt. Who look pretty ropey by the way um but there's one goal in which he he robs the center half of the ball and then goes through on goal and he you're just not catching him which is uh given how big he is and how kind of cumbersome he can look it's like a sort of um it's like he it's almost like he's made out of metal in a way because he, he's sort of all he's like a sort of a robotic footballer because he's, he's sort of his joints move in that jerky way but he's just it's incredibly quick and he's it's just um, pistons that's how he goes so yeah fast pistons a little bit like a, like an old-fashioned steam train you can see all the muscles working at the same it's time like an old-fashioned robot do you think that's why he will i mean currently he is when you talk about the next generation of you know the sort of the ballon d'or types the, the 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 binary that everyone likes to create messy against that other guy i won't say um holland is always second to mbappe do you think that's do you think that's an aesthetics thing because oh, because I, mbappe I has that that glide that smoothness to yeah. his movement that fluidity and holland is a monster boy yeah monster like he's a, he's just he's a, a tank he looks like a, bursting a through right friendly alien like he he's <laughs> sure. I, think, I, 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 I think there's a couple of problems though. firstly um Kylian mbappe is french and that's kind of where you expect world-class talent to come from. Yeah, uh, Erling Haaland is Norwegian. Don't have many world-class players from Norway. Uh, Joe Tessum. <laughs> Klaus Lundekvam. <laughs> yeah. Just you know, he's just he's just another on the production line. In other words, isn't he? It's, it's incredible. Yeah. yeah. The baton has been passed from Joe Tessum <laughs> to Erling Haaland. Um, uh, also, um, he's not very cool. Like if you watch uh, Erling Haaland celebrate goals, he's got all this sort of boyish um, enthusiasm. It just really lights the game. He does weird stuff. Like when he when he made his Champions League debut um, for Salzburg, he put out a post on his Instagram of him sitting in his car at about midnight listening to the Champions League anthem at like at 11 out of 10 on his stereo. And then Kylian Mbappe would never, ever, ever do that because it's just not very cool. Like it's no. kind of, it's a bit of a geek thing to do. Um, and I think Mbappe is incredibly urbane, isn't he? Yeah, he like, is. He's just elegant, and, and, and that's great, man. I, lo I love Kylian Mbappe; he's great. But I think there's a sort of um, there is this. I think that's part of the binary relationship between the two, like or, or will be in the future, because I think there is a contrast between them and the way that you need for a proper sort of footballing rivalry. Um, and they play in different ways. And I, I see um, Alex said already, like. Mbappe glides. He's just—he's such an elegant player. He scores goals in a way which he makes it look easy. Erling Haaland makes football look exhausting, like absolutely knackering. Like you just watch him play, and you just, you're tired from watching him because it's so much effort. And um, I'm not saying, of course, that Mbappe doesn't put effort into to the way he plays. Of course, he does. It just—it's an aesthetics thing. Um, but it's um, yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting contrast. Also, he was really into it on Saturday, and you'd expect. I think some people watching after the kind of the the summer of uh, rumor and conjecture whether there'd be a little bit of a kind of a little bit of that frustration that crept into his game at the end of last season where he was a little bit hacked off with where Dortmund were or so it seemed but he was um he was bang into it and he will score an absolute ton of goals this season of course and provide a lot of assists on the basis of Saturday. Well do you know what I think I think Manchester City should buy him and Harry Kane, and Kylian Mbappe. 
just yeah that would be fun for I football. just do that's what I think yeah and that's about as close to something Joe would say that I can think of <laughs> to end the podcast <laughs> so on that stupid note um, thank you very much Seb Stafford Blower thank you JJ Bowl. it's lovely to talk to you and thanks to you Alex Stewart thanks JJ Alex smiles when he's in the office it's nice see you later Athletic.